Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 15th of June, Tom O'Toole taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Tom took us through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Tom is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and also heads up the Broadcast Network, an online platform resourcing church planters across the world. Let's take a listen to the session. Good morning everyone, thank you for having me with you. Uh, it's the first time actually I've been to School of Theology, so uh, forgive me that uh, this is a bit unfamiliar to me in terms of how you run. With, with questions, what I thought we would do, I, I don't know how many of you uh, are, are kind of question people and how many just look at the question people, you don't ask questions, just let them get through it so we can go home. Um, but there are various moments along the way that I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask for questions. So okay, if it's mid-flow and you've got a little question like, hey, what did that word mean or can you repeat that? That's fine. If it's a, a bigger uh, application question or something like that, just hold on to it and then I'll ask for questions every now and then. So as Andy said, we're going to be looking at 1 and 2 Corinthians. These are two letters written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. But let me start by putting it all in the big context. So think about Jesus. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and then he had about six weeks with his disciples, uh, trying to instill in them some key things for when he had ascended back to heaven. And if you read any of the Gospels, you'll see the same themes coming up in different words. There seem to be lots of conversations around the same topics. And there were two big things that Jesus wanted to instill in those disciples. The first one is, I've got a job for you to do. And that's to go out as my witnesses, as my missionaries into all the world. And you're going to tell people the good news of what my death and resurrection has done. The second big theme was there'll be power for you to do it. I'm going to send out the Holy Spirit to help you with the task. And so you pick it up in the book of Acts. Now, I know you've done the book of Acts recently, so this should be fairly familiar to you. But Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Then you read the story of Acts and you see it kind of happens but it kind of doesn't. So Jerusalem, in the early chapters of Acts, they were bossing that. They were uh, planting a great church in Jerusalem. They were seeing many people get saved and added, and uh, the quality of the life in that church was really good. But in those early chapters, not many of them go out into the other places. You don't see lots of missionary journeys to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in those first few chapters. The story develops, though, and we see really three things happen that change that. The first one is there's big persecution in Jerusalem. So lots of people uh, who were quite settled in their church life there end up getting a hard time from the authorities. They're scared for their lives. So they have to leave and they have to go to other places. And as they go to other places, they're telling people about Jesus and churches are getting formed. So you see the Great Commission start to get fulfilled a bit because of persecution. The second big turning point was Paul. So Paul, one of the persecutors, 
met with Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life changed, he repented of his sins, and he started to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, you will be my instrument, you'll be the one I use as my apostle to the Gentiles. So he had a particular commission that he would spearhead the church's advance into Gentile areas. And then the third one is one of the, uh, one of the early uh, churches in kind of Gentile uh, places was the church in Antioch. And these guys had a real uh, missionary uh, heart. So w- one night they had a, a prayer meeting, their leadership team were there, and the Holy Spirit told them to send 40% of their team. So the five of them, that's Paul and Barnabas, so two of the, like, the big dogs of early Christianity. Uh, the Holy Spirit said, oh, yeah, these two, you, you send them out. And they did. They, they gave away some of their best people to, to go as missionaries and to start spreading the gospel. So then the book of Acts tells you this story from city to city, from place to place, of people going, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and seeing churches started. A little bit of a problem came up when people who weren't Jewish started to respond. This is something they hadn't really thought through all that well. Because originally, Christianity had grown out of Judaism. So there was all the promises of the Old Testament. There was all the expectation. Uh, Jesus himself was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. Everything happened within that context. And everything made sense within that context. But then what happens when somebody who doesn't have any of that wants to follow Jesus? What does Christianity look like for them? How much... Would it be similar for the life of a Christian in a place like Corinth that we're going to talk about today? Does that need to be the same as a Christian in Jerusalem? Does their experience of Christianity need to be the same? Do the way they do church need to match? Or is it possible to have a kind of Christianity that has a Corinthian flavour to it and another kind that has an Antioch flavour to it? That is one uh, of the big questions that they had to debate. Think about it like this. I don't know if any of you uh, have ever bought a computer game and then bought an expansion pack for it. So it's a, I once did it when I was a teenager. I can't remember what it was. But I bought what looked like a brilliant computer game. And, and it turned out it was just an expansion pack. And I didn't have the original game. And it kind of didn't work without the original. They needed to figure out, well, is Christianity like that expansion pack? Do you need Judaism for the whole thing to work? And some people would say yes. So they'd go around to all the places where Paul had been and they'd say to people, yeah, it's great that you understand this Jesus stuff, but you don't really get the background. You're not kind of Jewish. Now, it was possible for people who weren't born Jewish, they could still convert into it, but they had to keep the law. They had to uh, be circumcised, all, all, all these things around it, all the trappings of it. Some people would say, yeah, you have to do this. Your Christianity has to look like this for it to make sense to have Jesus to come in as the Messiah of Israel, as the the King of the Jews, to receive him. You need to go through all this kind of Jewish external stuff. Now, Peter had been given a vision by Jesus of of basically loads of animals, and God said, like, kill them and eat them. He said, I can't do that, they're unclean. And God said, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, this isn't a direct quote, but God basically said, chill out, Peter, have a bacon sandwich, it's all good. Uh, And he was telling him, it's fine. Uh, What what the Old Testament talks about in the, the cleanliness laws that no longer applies. So that gave them some guidance. Actually, then when we go to these places, we don't need to make people from Corinth or from Antioch 
into uh, Jews before they can become Christians. They can receive Christ within the culture that they're in. But it was a fiercely debated topic. So they, they got together, they had a meeting about it. They had what's called the Council of Jerusalem. Loads of people rocked up in Jerusalem. The apostles were there presiding and they heard arguments from different people. So they heard from some of the Pharisees and some of uh, what you call the Judaizers. These were the guys who wanted everyone uh, to, to become Jewish before they could become Christian. And they made their case. And then you had people like Paul and Barnabas and Peter making the case that that shouldn't happen. That people uh, shouldn't have obstacles put in the way, but that they can receive Christ. James was like the chairman of the council. He ruled in favour of Paul and Barnabas and Peter. He said, look, it's fine. We don't need to make people submit to the Jewish law. That was a huge moment in the story of Acts. A key moment in the life of the early church. But then he said, we are going to ask them to do a few things. Though. One of them is sexual immorality. They need to cut that out. And they should keep themselves from food that's been offered to idols and anything that's been strangled and anything with the blood still in it. Now, that, that wasn't trying to say, oh, there's a bit of the law they need to keep. The whole spirit of the meeting is we want to make it as easy as possible for people to be Christians. We want as few obstacles as possible. And he recognised there were just a few things that were real sensitive issues for Jews who they were trying to reach with the gospel. So people in most cities, the first place they would go was the synagogue, and they'd explain how Jesus was the fulfilment of the scriptures. And if you've got Christians kind of uh, eating food offered to idols and getting involved in all sorts of sexual immorality, it's not going to help the people who are trying to reach them. So this, for the sake of trying to reach uh, as broad uh, a crowd as possible, the ruling was... Let's make it so that nobody has to follow the law, but let's ask people to bear one another in mind uh, and just try and be sensible in how they live things out so as not to put a stumbling block before people. So with this ruling in their pocket, Paul uh, and his team, they, they carried on on their missionary journeys. They went from place to place, up through uh, Turkey into Greece and beyond, starting churches in different cities. One of them was the city of Corinth. Now that's the one that will be relevant for this morning. Paul went there initially, he was on his own, then he hooked up with a couple who lived there, who were Aquila and Priscilla. They worked in the same industry as him, making tents. He stayed at their house, and then every, Sunday, every Saturday, every Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and he would reason with people. Then, uh, a little while later, some of his team arrived. So Timothy arrived, Silas arrived, uh, and, and they start then upping the pace of what they're doing. Every day now, they're about the work of God. They see some people get saved, get added into the church. A, a little fledgling church has formed in Corinth. But it was a difficult place to be. There was opposition in that city. One night, uh, Paul had a dream and Jesus appeared to him. He said, don't give up, Paul. Keep going. Keep preaching the gospel here. I've got many in this city who are my people. So he's got this encouraging promise from Jesus that there are people out there in Corinth who he's chosen who will get saved. And yet opposition heated up and heated up. Eventually, as this church is established, we're about 18 months in now, uh, Paul realises it's time for him to go to the next place and plant the next church. So he leaves this newly formed church in Corinth. But he's still corresponding with them. He's writing letters back and forth. He's trying to help them on their way, even though he's not with them 
in person. Now, you might see in your notes, I've put a little timetable of the events just so you can get the context of what's going on. So in 49 AD, and these are rough dates, these are the best scholars estimates, but about 49 AD, you've got this Council of Jerusalem. So that's when they all gathered together to talk about what happens when a Gentile wants to become a Christian. Two or three years later, 51 to 52 is when Paul is in Corinth. And not long after he left at all, he wrote them a letter. Now here's where it gets confusing, because the letter that he wrote, his first letter to the Corinthians, isn't the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Okay? His first letter to the Corinthians is gone. It's, it's unpreserved. We don't have a copy of it. But we do have a reference to it in what we would call 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. They wrote back to him a little while later, and then he wrote to them a second letter. And his second letter to the Corinthians is what we call 1 Corinthians. Okay, are you tracking with this? So, um, second letter, 1 Corinthians. They respond again. Now, here's where it gets even more confusing, because some people think there was another unpreserved one that would be 3 Corinthians, because there's a reference in what we call 2 Corinthians to a severe letter. Now, I think the severe letter actually is 1 Corinthians, as we'll see. It's quite harsh to them uh, in certain things he says, uh, quite gentle in other parts. But I, I think the severe letter is 1 Corinthians. Some people disagree with that. So depending on where you stand, then you've got the letter that uh, we call 2 Corinthians that is really either 3 Corinthians or 4 Corinthians. Okay, you got that. Good. Let's talk about Corinth for a bit. So Corinth was a busy city. It was, it was a fun city to live, actually. Um, if I was around, I probably would have moved there. Uh, population, uh, depending on what part uh, of history you're in, somewhere between 100,000 and 600,000 uh, over the life of the city. It's in modern-day Greece, and I've put a little map in your notes. The map is quite important. Uh, can, can you see Corinth on your on your map. Just find it. If you see you've got mainland Greece, you've got this kind of bit sticking out there, Peloponnesus, and then you've got like a tiny little land bridge between the two, and Corinth is right on that land bridge. Have you found it? You can see it there. Good. Now that was an important place because when someone wanted to travel from Rome to the east, they had two options what they could do. Either they could take their boat all the way down the bottom, like a long way round, through really dangerous water. So there were lots of pirates and bandits operating in the water to the south. There was a saying at the time, let him who sails round Malia first make his will. Okay, it was a, a dangerous place to go. Your other option is you could go through to, to Corinth. And you see that tiny little land bridge that was only six miles from one set of water to the other set of water. It was a tiny little place. So what a whole bunch of people did is they took their boats there to Corinth, they got out, and because they had slaves and stuff, they got people to drag their boats the six miles over land to get in the water at the other side. It was a shortcut, it saved a lot of time on their journey. Uh, it took a lot of danger out of their journey. So you got a lot of people passing through for trade. And because you've got all these people passing through, it meant that Corinth was an interesting city for commerce. So you'd get goods uh, and people from all different places kind of being on the markets there. You'd get businesses started to deal with all these people who were passing through. It made it a city where people wanted to be. Another thing to know about Corinth uh, is 
I'd call it a startup city. It had a lot uh, of interesting entrepreneurial things going on. So uh, it was a place that was under Roman rule. It had been colonized by the Romans in 44 BC. What the Romans did is when they wanted to uh, get people in the army into senior ranks, part of the pitch that they'd make is, look, if you come and serve in our army at such and such a rank, when you've done your tour of duty, we'll give you some land in Italy. And this would be like a big reward that they would offer people. Now, the problem they had is there were already people living in Italy. It was quite a crowded place. There were lots of poor people there. And so to, to get the land to give their soldiers, they needed to move the people who already lived there. And so uh, the people who lived there were kind of like in, uh, in service to richer people. They said, look, we'll make you a deal. You can have your freedom. You can do what you want. You just have to move out of Italy. We've got another place for you to live. And Corinth was a city where they sent loads of people like that. So you've got a lot of people who are newly freed living in Corinth. And that means their kids are the first generation that are born free. They're able to be educated to a greater degree than they would have been in Italy. So you've got lots now in, in Corinth of educated, young, creative people looking for ideas, looking for opportunities, looking for something to do with their life. So as you can imagine, business has started, entrepreneurship happened, people are trying to make their way in the city. And when you've got a city like that, you'll find it's quite cosmopolitan because it's bustling, because it's interesting, because things are happening. Lots of people from different parts of the empire are drawn there. So people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages spoken there were all drawn to the city. The entrepreneurship, the, the commerce, the travel all brought wealth. The wealth wasn't evenly distributed. You got some super rich people there, also some people trapped in poverty. But imagine a city like that. Imagine a city where people have been drawn from all over, where people have been newly freed and have gone there, but there isn't an established aristocracy in place. It's like an, an even playing field where lots of people are trying to get to the top of the tree. They want uh, the status. Now, some people thought the way they would get their status is getting all the money. The richest people would go to the top. But not everyone agreed that wealth was the criteria to use. Some people thought the way you get the status and fill that void is through education, through knowledge, through philosophy and learning. Others thought it was through religion, through uh, kind of your priestly endeavours, through what you do uh, with the different gods that were around at the time. Some thought it was through your public speaking, through your rhetoric, through how strong a case you could make, how, how good your oratory was. Some people thought it was through um, hosting big sporting events, big music festivals, or others thought it was through performing in them that you could get your status. People moving from all over made it a pluralistic place. Within 150 metres of the central city square, the uh, Agora, you've got temples or statues to Dionysus, to Artemis, to Bacchus, to Fortune, to Poseidon, to Apollo, to Aphrodite, to Hermes, to Zeus, to Zeus of the underworld, to Zeus Most High, and to the Muses. Okay? That's in 150 metres of the market square. Basically, if you go out to town in Corinth, you can do idol worship and shopping. They were, they were your two options going into town. But actually, if you go a bit wider, if you look at the city as a whole, you'd also have lots of media outlets, you'd have farms, you'd have gyms, you'd have holistic medicine, big sporting events, a vibrant arts scene. It was a creative place. 
This whole melting pot, there's so many people coming into a new place, exploring freedom. Uh, it meant you had a lot of people struggling with addiction because people would kind of throw off their traditional bounds, they'd experiment with things. There was a lot of substance abuse, there was a lot of alcoholism. Also, it's highly sexually promiscuous. So much so that in the ancient world, to Corinthianize was a euphemism for certain lifestyles. And... Um, Prostitutes were often referred to as Corinthian girls. That was the reputation this city had. So uh, it had all of that going on. I love the city of Corinth. It's just a, an exciting, fun, vibrant <laughs> melting pot. <laughs> I don't think it's that dissimilar to Manchester. It's, it's not a complete match, but there's so much there that I recognise in my city. Uh, it would be a fun place to be and to do church. Now, Paul, uh, in his letters to the guys in Corinth. Um, some of the key things that emerge, one of them is about his own apostolic authority. So there's been a bit of a breakdown in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. Some of the people have come in, they've started ministering there. Some of them are, are good people, people like Apollos, who is a friend of Paul, co-worker of him. Some of them are, are not so good and, and have been teaching different things. But they're starting to reject Paul. They're starting to say, well, why should you have this kind of authority? Why should we listen to what you have to say? Uh, and they've got all kinds of criticisms about him that we will come on to. And he's answering those criticisms in part. A big theme is how, how do you live as a Christian church in a pagan city? How do you do Christianity in a place like Corinth? Because all of what I've described, that's so different to the Jerusalem that the, the first church came up in. And if the Council of Jerusalem are saying a church in Corinth doesn't need to look the same as a church in Jerusalem... That opens up a lot of questions. If it's not just a case of cloning what you've already seen, how do you think it through? How, how do you answer the, the tough pastoral questions, the tough cultural questions of how you do Christianity in that kind of place? We'll also see a big theme of Christian unity, and that unity is around the cross. We'll talk about gathered worship as the body of Christ. How do we use our time together? Servant leadership comes up. What, what actually is the, uh, the job description of a Christian leader? How impressive do you need to be? What, what should you be projecting strength in? And actually, where does weakness come into it? So servant leadership and strength through weakness. So there's a bit of background to get us started. Um, let's just pause there and see if anyone's got any questions. Great, okay. There will be plenty more opportunities through the morning. Here's what I'm going to get you to do on your tables then. We're going to come on to 1 Corinthians in a moment. So without kind of looking ahead through all the notes, just tell each other what has been your experience of 1 Corinthians before. Okay, have, you, have you read it much? Are there any particular passages that you remember God has spoken to you particularly through? So yeah, just take a couple of minutes and process your experience of 1 Corinthians so far. Okay, I'm going to give you another thing to discuss as well. So just, um, just give me a second and I'll explain what, what I want you to do and then carry on the discussion. I want you on your tables then to read the introduction to the letter. So that's the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and try and answer this question just from those verses... What does Paul think of this church? What is his view of this group of Christians? So take a few minutes and do that.
Okay, let's gather that back in now if that's okay. So when we're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, you can break it down in a number of different ways. So um, probably the easiest way to do it is the first six chapters are things that Paul wants to bring up with this church. And then from chapter seven onwards, he starts by saying, now about the, the things that you wrote to me in your letter. So from then on, he's responding to things that they have raised. Thematically, you've got five different blocks. You've got uh, chapters one to four are about the cross and Christian unity. Chapters 5 to 7 are about the church and relationships. Chapters 8 to 10 are about the church and the culture. Chapters 11 to 14 are about gathered worship. Chapter 15 is about the resurrection and then some closing remarks in chapter 16. But as you've read, this introduction is incredibly warm. We'll see later in the letter there are lots of issues in the Corinthian church that Paul needs to get into with them. And yet the way he starts, I love these verses. But just imagine Paul, he's a church planter. Now, I don't know if any of you uh, have been involved in church planting. Some of you have, others may not have been. But there's something about church planting that's hard, that's pressurised, that you feel under the cosh. Imagine in one of your hardest moments in church planting, when everything feels like it's crowding in, you have a dream and Jesus speaks to you in the dream and says, keep going with this because I've got many people in this city. And then imagine over the next 12 months, one by one by one, you see people in this city responding to your evangelism. You see people giving their life to Jesus and being added to the church. And this thing that Jesus had spoken to you about in a dream to encourage you at your darkest moment, you're seeing it come into reality a day by day as you are planting this church. And then you move on. This group of people, can you imagine how fondly you would think of them? They are your living miracle. They're your fulfillment of the word that Jesus spoke to you. And these words that Paul says show a tenderness, a desperation for these guys to be on track in their faith. He loves them. He says, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you. In every way, you were enriched. You're not lacking in any gift. He will sustain you to the end. This is how he thinks of them. He loves these guys. That's important because sometimes when we get into harder issues, which we will, we, we forget the context. We think that he's slapping them down, that he's telling them off. He's not. He's pastoring them. These are people that he loves and he cares for. Let's look at the first section. Uh, so the first section is all about the cross and Christian unity. Now, the presenting issue in Corinth was Christian tribalism. So people are gravitating to their favourite leaders and you're seeing divisions happen in the church because of it. Paul mentions four particular groups that had formed. So let me summarise them for you. So there were some who said, I follow Paul. So we'll call these guys Team Paul. Okay? You've got Team Paul who are saying, Paul's my favourite, I follow him. I think these guys were probably the traditionalists in the church of Corinth. These were probably the guys there from the start who remember, back in Paul's day, we did it like this. I was there when Paul was around. I remember him saying this thing. I remember him doing this thing. We need to do it that way forevermore. I follow Paul. Now after Paul left, 
Another guy came in called Apollos, and he uh, ministered there. He did some things, and by all accounts, Apollos was a bit more charismatic than Paul. He had a more magnetic personality. He was a better public speaker. He had a bit of flash going on. He was um, uh, an attractive guy to follow. So some people say, no, no, Paul, yeah, he, he got us going. He's a bit stuffy that I follow Apollos. Team Apollos rocks. So you've got this kind of second team and divisions were forming between them. But then you've got some others trying to outdo them. I said, oh, well, you might follow Paul or Apollos. I follow Peter. That's the big dog back in Jerusalem. You know, he, he knows where it's at. Yeah, yeah, these guys who've come to Corinth, they're all right. But yeah, I follow Peter. He's the one you need to listen to. I think that's a little bit like saying, hey, uh, I, I don't need a church in Manchester. Tim Keller's my pastor. I listen to all his sermons. It's, it's that kind of thing. You're looking uh, at a distance for your authority. And there's really only one way you can outdo that. If someone said, I follow Peter, like he was like kind of the chief of the apostles. It's like, there's only one way to outdo that. I follow Christ, team Jesus, okay? Now that sounds like the right answer. That wasn't the right answer. Because what they meant by that is I follow Jesus, so I don't need to listen to Paul. I follow Jesus, so Apollos is irrelevant. I follow Jesus, so stuff Peter. I don't need any of them because I go to my bedroom and I listen to a worship CD and Jesus talks to me. So that's all I need. That's kind of what these guys are getting at. And you've got divisions forming in the church based on who they're looking to for their authority. Paul's saying, look, you've missed the point. It is all about Jesus. You know, he has some rhetorical questions. Was Paul crucified for you? Now, hopefully you've learned on School of Theology so far. No, he wasn't. Jesus was. Were you baptised into the name of Paul? No, he's, he's gathering their attention to Jesus as the focal point. Let me read verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul came as a messenger. Paul came as one to preach the gospel, to point people to the cross where Jesus gave his life for them. So then he, he starts unpacking, look, you're looking to the wrong things. You're trying to follow some dead ends. Because there are people in Corinth who rather than looking for the simple preaching of the cross as what made them respond to a certain leader... They were looking elsewhere. Some were looking for wisdom. Now remember, Corinth was a Greek city. It was stooped in all the philosophers, all the rhetoricians. You had people who would travel around the different Greek cities. And depending on how well logically they could put an argument together and how well they could present their case based on human wisdom, that determined what kind of hearing, what kind of following they'd get, what kind of payday they got from it. People would raise money by their speaking skills. Others were looking for power. So remember kind of the Jewish culture, the Old Testament heritage that they had. Anyone who came from God could show power. You know, when Moses confronted Pharaoh, well, it was a power showdown, wasn't it? It was signs, it was wonders, it was miracles. He, he outdid Pharaoh's magicians in terms of the power that he could show. Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, all these figures in the Old Testament with miracles surrounding them. And then the expectation of who the Messiah would be, the one who's kind of this coming king who would overthrow the shackles of the oppressors. Everything in the expectation was this would be a moment for power. So people were looking for a wisdom of argument, for power of miracles. And Paul says you, you're looking in the wrong places. If you want to look for a Christian gospel ministry, the first thing you look for is the simple preaching of the cross. 
Are they explaining this basic message? Jesus died for you. Come to him. He says, look, the cross, it seems like folly to the Greeks. You know, when people are doing all their convoluted logic and Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these guys, and you come and you say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for my Bible told me so. And that's all you've got? doesn't sound like wisdom. And yet it is, that's the wisdom of God on display through the cross. God shows a wisdom that confounds human expectation. And to the Jews, the cross looked like defeat. It looked like weakness. It seemed like there's no power. How can you say that the Messiah will die? Isn't that just game over? Isn't that just a loss? Paul's saying, no, here's the power of God. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the devil. The cross is both wisdom and power, but you need to see it. You need to really see. Even the Corinthians themselves, they were the evidence of God's wisdom and power at work. Paul says God chose what is weak to shame the strong. And the Corinthians are the example of that. So in chapter 2, we go on, we ask the question, well, how do we understand God? Because if, if wisdom doesn't work, what do we look to? And Paul says, well, it's not quite that wisdom doesn't work. Let's separate it out. There are different kinds of wisdom. There's the natural wisdom. That's the best wisdom you can do by your own thinking, the best logic you can get. By that, none of us would ever get to God. You need a revealed wisdom. You need the Holy Spirit who can show you the inner things of God. Chapter 3, he goes on and helps them see the true relationship between him and Apollos. They're actually friends. They're not rivals. They're not vying for uh, different followers in Corinth. They're both trying to point people to Jesus. They're co-laborers. They have different parts to play. So uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God who gives the growth. He's the one who does it all. And then in chapter 4, he opens up something that we will go into more in 2 Corinthians. What does true apostolic ministry look like? What should you be looking for? Well, you need servants of Christ. You need people who are faithful. You need people who won't go beyond what is written. You don't want to become puffed up. You need to be willing to suffer for the gospel. And you need to spiritually father people. There's kind of a defense of his ministry and a critique of those coming in as well. So this section, this first bit, is saying actually as Christians we shouldn't be divided off into different groups. We shouldn't be split into different tribes around different leaders. We should be united around Christ and the cross. Let's pause again. Anyone got any questions on that first section? Great. Okay, I'm going to get you thinking then. One more uh, group activity to do. We are going to play pretend pastoring, okay? So uh, I'm going to give you a pastoral situation. Now, some of you I know are on leadership teams in your church, in your site. Some of you may not, but just imagine for now that you are. I'm going to give you a pastoral situation. Uh, and imagine this happened in your church what are you going to do to deal with it? Okay, so uh, let's say uh, for uh, the people on this side here, and we'll say the back two tables in the middle, you've got the situation that uh, somebody, let's say a man in your church, is having an affair with his stepmother. Okay, pastorally, what are you going to do? And let's say the front two tables over here, and people on this side, someone in your church is going to sue somebody else in your church. What are you going to do as pastors to get involved in that? Go. <laughs>
if you get to a point where you feel like you've run the conversation as far as you want, feel free to then switch over and discuss the other situation as well. So the first one is a man's having an affair with his stepmom. The second one is somebody in the church is suing somebody else in the church. So carry on the first one or switch to the second one. It's up to you. Okay, let's stop that there. We're going to take our first break. We will reconvene at quarter past ten. Before the break, I gave you a couple of situations to try and get you into the mindset of what was going on in the Corinthian church. Both of those examples were real examples from Corinth. So in chapter 5, we read about uh, the man who was having an affair with his father's wife. That would be his stepmother. And we see about the church's response to that situation. Believe it or not, the Corinthians were actually quite proud to have this going on in their church. They thought it was a good thing because uh, they'd understood grace. And when you really understand grace, then you'll have all sorts going on and you'll be totally chilled out about it and everything will be fine. They, they thought this was a big tick in their favour. Paul's not so sure. The trouble with responding to that kind of situation is if you, if you respond in a really hardline way, so you need to get this sorted, there needs to be a high bar of holiness, then it opens you up to the charge that is often made against Christians of, oh, you guys are so judgmental, you're telling these people how to live their lives, why would you do that? If you go down the other route, and if you say, actually, let's not make a big deal of this, let's just let this play out and see what happens, you open yourself up to the charge of, oh, you're so hypocritical, you know, uh, you're out here, you're talking about God being holy, and you're letting this go on in your midst. Seems like in um, the world, in the church, perhaps, there might be two values that we might be drawn towards, but it's not easy to know which one would apply in a situation. So one of them is holiness. We want to be reflective of God's glory. We want to be pure in the way we conduct ourselves. And another one is tolerance. We want to get on with people. We want good, harmonious relationships. We want to accept people where we can. What do we do? And it seems like the Corinthians have got it completely the wrong way around. So it seems like in their church, they're really playing the tolerance card. Oh, we, we need to just let this be and be proud of it. But when they respond to their city, it seems like they're disassociating themselves from sexually immoral people. In chapter 5, Paul explains it needs to be the other way around. In the church, when you're talking followers of Jesus, there needs to be a high bar. So he gives them a stern warning. He says, look, you need to remove this guy from the church. He compares it to like yeast in a dough. If you let kind of sin and immorality just spread through the church, it will spread. It will uh, take over. But the purpose of removing him wasn't like as a, as a punishment. It's not, you've done the crime, do your time. The idea was to be restorative. So they want this guy thriving. They want him uh, holy, living for God, repentant. And we'll see uh, in 2 Corinthians, actually, that's exactly what's happened. And they're talking about letting him back in. However, when it comes to the way we deal with outsiders... There's something very different. Let me just read verses 9 to 12 for you. 
He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this is like the first Corinthians letter, the, the, the missing one. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So often what we do is we have quite a low bar in the church and then approach the world with a, quite a judgmental eye. Paul's saying it's the opposite. Actually, outside, you know, we're not meant to be judging the world, critiquing the lifestyle of our city. But what we are meant to do is in our community, we're meant to be calling one another to holiness. The second issue uh, is dealt with in chapter 6. That was the lawsuits thing. So you had people in the church suing other people in the church, taking it to non-Christian judges to resolve their problems. Paul reminds them of a few things. He reminds them that as believers, there'll be a day to come in glory when we will be judging the angels. Can't we sort out whatever the disputes between us are? And then he says, look, for the sake of the gospel, maybe it's better just to suffer wrong. Maybe it's better just to let the other person have what they want, take the loss, rather than parade all of this before the courts. Now what we get then in chapter 6 from verses 9 onwards is it comes on to uh, teaching on relationships and uh, kind of sex, marriage, singleness, all those kind of things. Now remember context here, so two things. Remember what Corinth is like, we talked about that a lot at the start. And remember what he's just said about not being judgmental towards outsiders. And yet in verses 9 to 11, uh, he starts to list what the life of the kingdom is. And there, there are various aspects to it, but within it are quite a few instructions to do with sex and relationships. So let me just read the verses. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, so there with a whole bunch of examples, he's described what you could call Corinthian lifestyle. And what he said is Corinthian lifestyle and Christian lifestyle don't necessarily match. Now, now the purpose isn't to try and get Corinth to live a Christian lifestyle. The purpose is trying to get the Christians to live a Christian lifestyle. That's what he wants to do. He says, such were some of you. You used to live like your city. I'm sure many of us would have similar testimonies. We used to live just like everybody else. But something's changed. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been brought from one to the other. Then he engages with some things that the Corinthians have said. And basically their argument is, they're comparing to food. It's like, look, food was made for the stomach, stomach was made for the food, so let's just eat and be happy. Now they're using that as a, a kind of a metaphor, an illustration. Basically they say it should be the same with sex. Our biology should determine what we're made for, what we do. Just look at um, the way we are made, surely we should just live that out. Paul's argument is basically, look, don't look to biology to find out what you were made for. Look to theology. 
for what you were made for. So let me just do a little detour into Genesis so you kind of understand where this is going. When God made the world, he, he created everything and he brought order to it. But he made things in pairs. I don't know if you've ever spotted this as you read through Genesis 1, but God made the heavens and the earth. That's a complementary pair. God made the night and the day. God made the waters above and the waters below. God is making things, but he's doing so with a pattern of complementary pairs. And you see pairs coming together and life coming from that. So when the waters above come down to the waters below, that's the rains, and that gives life and plants grow. When the heavens and earth meet, that's when there is life. When the pairs of the animals, the pairs of the fish, the pairs of the bird come together, that's where life comes from. Okay, life comes from the pairs that God has made separate but being brought together. In the narrative, though, there's a problem. There is one uh, piece of creation that doesn't have a partner. And God said, this is not good. And that's Adam. That's the man. So God has made the man. He does not have a helper who is fit slash suitable for him. Hebrew word for fit slash suitable is konegdo. Okay, now, konegdo uh, literally means like apart from him. So one who's like him but different from him, his complementary partner. In the end, uh, we find that the partner is Eve. She is created for this role. She is like him in that she is human. She is different from him or other than him in that she is female. And now humanity can enter in this creation purpose of pairs coming together, life coming from it. What does that look like for Adam and Eve? Well, it's two things. It's marriage and it's sex. So they're leaving their parents' home. They're cleaving together. They're making covenant with one another. So when we have a conversation about sex and sexuality, we need to understand it's not just about our biology. It's not just the urges that we have, is what Paul's saying. It's about something bigger. And you can tie it into creation purposes. The body was made for the Lord. That's what Paul says. And that creation purpose is part of something even bigger than just creation. It's part of the gospel and God bringing all things together in Christ. So when these pairs are coming together in creation, that's a shadow of all of creation coming together with Christ. Ephesians 5 picks up that theme. So sex and relationships fits into a creation purpose, which fits into a gospel purpose. Understanding all of that helps make sense of Paul's teaching in chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, he enters into the question, okay, given that's true, let's talk about marriage and singleness. Because you had some people in Corinth who were saying, look, maybe married people should live as though they're single. They should abstain from all sexual activity because, you know, we've got the gospel, we've got a mission, let's just crack on with it and kind of just put our marriages on one side so that we can get on with the work of the gospel. You got some other people who were single, who wanted to be married and were desperate to find somebody and get married. You can ask the question, which is better? Is it better to be single or to be married? That's what chapter 7 is all about. Now, in the Old Testament, it seems like you've got loads of verses pointing us towards marriage and childbearing. So um, that creation purpose, Adam and Eve coming together. You'd see the promise that God made um, after the fall, actually through childbearing, you'll be saved. The promise to Abraham, you will have many descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. You've got all these verses that seem to be saying the main way God's going to do this is through generation to generation, through children, through marriage. And in Israel, really to have a name in that uh, part of the inheritance, your name, your land, it was all through the, the biological line. 
And yet you find this emphasis, the more the Old Testament goes on, the more you find a counterpoint to it coming on. So in Isaiah, uh, you see verses like, uh, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. And um, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, I will give a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. He said, look, let's move this away from just a biological inheritance. Actually, there's an inheritance in the Lord that we're all called into. God's building his kingdom, but it's in a different way. So Paul can affirm both. Marriage has a part to play. Marriage is a picture of the gospel, and it's a good thing. But because we have the gospel, because marriage is pointing to a union with Christ, and we have the union with Christ itself, marriage is like the trailer. We have the full movie. So it's saying whether you're married or single, both are good. He affirms both. He speaks positively of both. Marriage is a gift from God. It's an opportunity to live out the gospel day by day. It's a loving union. It's a physical union. It's a lifelong union. Read chapter 7 and you'll see how positive he is. But then more unusually for his day, he's positive about singleness. He really is. Singleness is a gift from God, and singleness is a particular gospel opportunity. Given the needs before uh, the world, given the needs before Corinth, given the missionary call of Jesus, Paul sees that singleness has its advantages. Actually, what married people are investing into their marriage, investing into their home, single people can throw everything at going out there and, and evangelizing and getting the gospel out. He says this is a good thing. In fact, Joseph Hellerman puts it like this. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 7 was not to ask how singleness fits into God's kingdom plan. Paul was addressing the issue of how marriage fits into his kingdom plan. Single people are already with the program. They are concerned about the things of the Lord, verse 32. Married people are the ones who need help sorting out their priorities. It's quite a provocative quote, isn't it? Um, Paul's saying both, marriage and singleness are good gifts from God. Yet if you're going to push him, if you're really going to push him to say which is better... He says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. We don't often hear that. It is quite a pastorally challenging thing to help married people and single people both do well. But both are affirmed and given a very, very high view here. We're going to move on to uh, the third section of this, which is about the church in culture. We're going to look at the idea of how do you make good moral decisions in the grey areas. Okay, so some moral decisions are black and white, they're easy. Should I tell a lie or not? That's an easy decision to make, don't tell the lie. Should I forgive a person who's wronged me or not? It's an easy decision to make, even if it's hard to do, I should forgive them. Some moral decisions are much more complicated, it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. That's what I call the grey areas of morality. Here's what I want you to do, just on your tables, I want you to just spend a couple of minutes, see what examples you can think of, of moral decisions, either that you've faced, that other people have, or they, that you've heard about, where it's not quite clear cut what the right thing to do is, and then what advice would you have for Christians in making moral decisions in those kind of areas? Take a few minutes on that. All right, let's rein that back in, let's, um, let's talk on this a little bit together. I wonder, can, can anybody share any of the examples that you came up with of morally grey decisions to make? Go on, yeah. Uh, downloading films. Okay, downloading films, okay. Go on. How much money would you see on a floor where you would feel bad picking it up and taking it home? 
Okay, and that's another one. Yeah, what else? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's a good example, though, isn't it? What do we do in that situation? Yeah, what else? What other examples did you? Yeah. How you spend your money? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, one that I get asked a lot is people who are not married who have a plan to go on holiday together and they've got it all worked out and they're kind of going to be in different rooms and blah blah what, what do you do in that situation you get um halloween parties should a christian go to a halloween party now i can't give you a chapter and verse that answers that either way but there's a whole bunch of stuff that might factor in to the decision the more you talk to people and navigate the complexities of life the more you realize that there's a whole category of questions that don't have a one-line answer that really to help people through them you need a lengthy conversation you need to dissect what's going on in a situation what's going on in the heart help them uh, to mature discipleship is more than just knowing the right answer to a bunch of uh, black and white questions it's how do you work through the gray areas now the corinthians had a huge gray area that they were approaching and that is idols now they didn't want to worship idols that would be a black and white thing but the life of the city in Corinth was built around idol feasts so people would gather together on certain feast days that were kind of nominally devoted to different gods but it wasn't really very worshipful what was going on they'd go to the feast of such and such a god it'd basically be the moment that the whole community hangs out together so they're thinking well is it appropriate for us to participate in this. It'd probably be quite useful to go along because uh, we'll build good relationships with our neighbours, we'll be integrated into the life of the city, but there's something kind of behind it that we're less sure about. Then you can take it a level further. So each of these kind of gods or idols or deities that were worshipped in Corinth would have their feast day. On their feast day, the sacrifices were made. Those sacrifices belonged to the priests. So imagine like 500 Corinthians turn up at this like uh, temple or statue, each with a sheep to offer in sacrifice and give to the priests. And there were like five priests who worked there. That's 100 sheep each for these priests. They were dead sheep. They didn't have freezers. What are you going to do if you're a priest of one of these gods? You're going to get that meat on the market. You're not going to be able to eat it all yourself. So you're going to sell it off and you're going to use that money then to support your family for most of the year. What this means is on those feast days, the next day, all these markets in Corinth are flooded with, with meat. And um, supply and demand means that drives the prices down. Most of the people in the Corinthian church were quite poor, and so meat usually is expensive. On these days, meat is now cheap. If you're planning like your community group barbecue, you're going to plan it on a day that there's cheap meat, and you're going to kind of just not mention the fact that this meat was once offered to Dionysus. You're just going to keep quiet about that, and you're going to have your barbecue. That just seems common sense to the Corinthians. It might seem common sense to people in this room as well. 
However, then you think rumours of this start to get back to James and Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. They're like, hang on a second, we, we had a meeting and we agreed that like, you guys don't need to submit yourself to the law, but we just asked like, a favour so that we can have some credibility as we're sharing the gospel with Jewish people. Don't eat meat that's been offered to idols. You know, the whole Jewish history, people turned away to idols and it looks like this might kind of seem like we're edging into this if we're eating this meat. Just ease off it, guys. That's what Paul was trying to teach the Corinthians, and the Corinthians don't really get it, and they don't really care. Because what they're saying is, look, these idols aren't real anyway. They're made up. I mean, if you read like Isaiah, he goes on and on about, look, the idol you're worshipping is just a bit of wood. You used half of the log on your fire. You've made yourself a god out of the rest of it. It can't do anything. It doesn't know the future. It can't save you. It's a waste of time. And they say, look, the things are fake anyway. It's cheap me. What is the problem? That is their argument. Now, Paul, he doesn't come steaming in. This surprises me. But if it was me, I'd probably come steaming in and say, look, we made a rule in Jerusalem. This is the rule. You all need to do it. He doesn't go that way. He starts to teach them, how do you make these morally great decisions? And how do you do it well? I've picked out five principles behind it. first one is the principle of freedom. So in the first few verses, he's looking at their claim that the idols aren't real. And he agrees with it. He says, look, there is no God but one, he's agreeing that an idol has no real existence. And by affirming this, he's saying this really does belong in the category of a grey area. It's not a clear-cut black and white. I'm not accusing you of worshipping a false god here. So, so let's look at it um, as something that we agree together. There's no real existence. But is that the only factor in play? He would say no. In verse 7, he refers to the conscience. And that's a key part of how we make decisions. So, so sometimes we might not have a Bible verse telling us, do this. But in our conscience, you know, the little voice inside us might be saying, don't do that. You should not do that. If your conscience is warning you not to do something, don't do it. Don't ignore your conscience. Because that's like saying, I think God doesn't want me to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's not a good place to be. So go back to that Halloween party example. Now, you might be someone who says, look, I've, I've analysed the situation. And basically what will happen is I will wear a superhero costume. I'll get together with my friends. We will listen to some music. We'll eat a bit of food. We will have a couple of drinks and we will chat. And in no place in that list of things am I doing anything immoral. Yet I know something about it doesn't sit right within me. If that's where you land... Don't do it. Now, it might not be something that speaks to your conscience. It might speak to one person's conscience and not another. That's fine. We need to respect each other's conscience. So if I've got something, I've got Christian friends in different parts of the world who in their conscience would say, I shouldn't drink alcohol. Now, I might know chapter and verse that Jesus turned water into wine uh, and I wouldn't prescribe to everyone, don't do that. But if my friend in their conscience says, I shouldn't do it, I'm not going to push them to do it. I'm not going to be like, right, down the pub, get this pint down you. I want to respect their conscience. The next one he talks about is the principle of love. So think about how what you will do will affect other people. 
So imagine like the mature believers in Corinth who have this really well thought through theology of idols. They know they're not real, so they know therefore that if they go to the big community party on like Dionysus Day, that isn't actually problematic. So they're there, they're eating, they're drinking, they're laughing, and then this like new Christian is walking past and they're like, ah, I see the elders of my church are at the Dionysus Fest. Oh, Dionysus must be legit then. It must be okay to worship Jesus and Dionysus. And that person stumbles in their faith. Do you see how the actions of some people have an effect on others? So the principle of love. Think through how what you're doing will look before other people. That example I gave of going on holidays. Now, now you may know that you've booked different rooms uh, in a hotel, that actually nothing is happening. But then when the photos go up on Instagram, and you two together on holiday on the beach, and those new Christians in your church are like, oh, yeah, going on holiday together must be legit. They probably haven't read all your Instagram photo hashtags saying, hashtag separate rooms, because you haven't put that hashtag, have you? Uh, no one does that. But you see what I mean? It looks a certain way to some people, and the way it looks causes harm to those people and leads them astray. So you, you've got to think about more than just, is it a black and white issue? You've got to delve into what is this doing to the body of Christ. In chapter 10, he picks up what I would call the principle of trajectory. So he uses the example of the Israelites in the wilderness, and they got led astray from God. They, they got led into idolatry, but it ended up to their destruction. You might make a choice today, and the choice you make might not be morally wrong, but it might take you a step in a certain direction. And then tomorrow, you might make another choice, and that might not be morally wrong in itself, but it takes you another step. And another. before you know it, you're a long way down a road that you had no intention of going down one choice at a time. So think about the trajectory you're setting yourself on. And then finally, towards the end of chapter 10, we're looking at the principle of mission. So we're living out our lives before an unbelieving world. So he's saying now, look, look, imagine you're going down the market and you're like, um, do you have to ask questions about every piece of meat that you buy? Where did you get this from? What was it offered to? He's saying, no, just chill out about it. If it's on the market, just buy it, it's fine. And if if you're invited around to your friend's house and they serve you some meat, it'd be a bit rude to say, right, Let's just have a conversation about this meat before I eat it. Tell me, where did you get it? What did you do with it? That's just bad manners. That's not going to help building a relationship. Eat whatever is put before you. So he's saying, think about the relationships. You don't want to put blocks between other people and receiving the gospel if you can help it. But imagine the scenario, you're invited around to your mate's house, they serve you some meat and they say, let me tell you about this meat. I offered this to Dionysus this morning, took in. At that moment, you might say, hang on a second. Because at that moment, they've made it into an issue. So then you need to have the conversation because you'd be kind of endorsing it if you didn't. That's his point in chapter 10. Chapter 9 is Paul showing himself as an example of this. He had rights. He had the right to get paid as a gospel minister. When he went to Corinth, he chose not to use that right for the sake of the Corinthians, for the sake of not putting a stumbling block between them and the gospel. In Corinth, a lot of people who had a message were kind of peddlers of the word so that they got paid for it. That was a big thing in Corinth. Paul didn't want to be categorised in the same group as them, so he said, I'm not going to ask for support from the church here. He's an example of somebody who had a right to something, and yet he chose to lay down that right for the good of the church and the gospel. That's exactly what he's encouraging them to do in their idol meet. 
Chapters 11 to 15, we are going to um, kind of just go a little bit faster through the end bit because we've got um, 2 Corinthians as well to come. Um, in chapters 11 to 15, they're talking about what we do when we get together. The basic premise that overarches all of it is the church is the body of Christ. We're all members of it, so we need to look out for one another, serve one another, and prefer one another. The start of chapter 11, you've got probably one of the most difficult passages in 1 Corinthians. If you've got questions, you can ask later. But it approaches the topic of head coverings. I think what's going on here is Paul is responding to something that the Corinthians have advocated. That's the rhythm of the second half of the, the letter. In verse 11, you see a key word, which is nevertheless. And nevertheless is a gear change word. So uh, just for your reference in future, what I believe is going on in 1 Corinthians 11 is the Corinthians want to do head coverings. Paul's kind of recounting their argument. Verse 11 says, nevertheless, everything after that counters all the points before it. So he's, like, he's arguing why that should not be the thing. And he's arguing why we should fight to include everybody in our times of gathered worship. From verse 17 on, he then takes us into the topic of communion. Now, what's going on in Corinth on communion is pretty awful. So they would have their communion in like a house church setting. They would have their meetings in the evenings after work. There was a mix in the church of some rich people and some poor people. Rich people could get off work earlier than the poor people. They'd have to stay out working later. So they got to the meetings later. They had their Corinthians as a meal. The rich guys had been there all afternoon. They'd scoffed all the food. They'd drunk all the wine. They were half-baked by the time the poor people got there and there was no communion left. And Paul said, this is a disgrace. This is not being the body of Christ together. Look, if you're hungry, eat at home before you come. This is meant to be a shared thing that talks about our, our togetherness as Christ's body. In chapter 12, there's a similar issue to do with spiritual gifts. People were wanting to dominate their meetings. People had different things to bring to the table. You had prophets, you had people who wanted to speak in tongues, uh, and you had all different gifts. Uh, and people wanted to emphasize, my gift is the best gift. I, I can prophesy, so you will shut up and listen to me. That's the way people would approach it. You'd get other people who were quite insecure about what they had to offer. They, they thought they were insignificant. They thought they didn't have much to bring to the table. Paul says, look, we are the body of Christ together and every part has its place. So if you're there in a body and you're like an ear and you're like, oh, I wish I was a nose, the nose is better, that's not the way to think. But nor should the ear be thinking, ah, your eyes are rubbish, you can't do anything. We shouldn't be thinking like that of each other. We should be creating a setting where everybody can use the gifts that God has given them and bring what they have to the meetings. Chapter 14, he really goes into detail on those gathered times together. Gifts like prophecy, gifts like tongues. What was happening is people were like talking over each other, interrupting each other, not listening to each other. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking to the body of Christ through different people, there'll be an order to that. We should be respectful, we should be listening, we should be taking on board what God wants to say to us. And then kind of sandwiched in it all is chapter 13. And chapter 13 
is the love chapter. You know the one that you hear at weddings a lot? It's not about weddings. It's about you guys as a church in Corinth, you're not really doing this. Actually, you're all trying to put yourself forward and you're not loving each other like you should. There's a slight tone of rebuke in this chapter. But this is really the heart of what our churches should be. We spend a lot of time discussing things like spiritual gifts and things like music styles. But really what makes a good time of gathered worship is doing 1 Corinthians 13 well. Let me just read the whole chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. That's what gathered worship should be characterised by. Fifth section, final section of the letter is about the resurrection. So some of the Corinthians had questions about the resurrection of believers. But Paul starts by setting it in the context of the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 1 to 11, he makes the case for the resurrection. And it's interesting, these verses, they counteract pretty much every um, alternative explanation of the events you can think of. Verse 3, Jesus died. So the idea that, oh, maybe he just passed out on the cross. No, he really died. Verse 4, he was buried. There's an actual body. Talking about, oh, maybe just a spiritual resurrection. He lives on in spirit. No, there was a body that was there in the tomb, buried. It's not in the tomb anymore. How do we explain that? Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So saying, oh, well, the body's not in the tomb because it's nicked. Well, no, the body's there alive talking to people. Verse 6, well, you could say it's a hallucination. No, because it appeared to hundreds of people at a time. Verses 7 and 8, maybe someone made it up. Well, how does that explain how James, who was a sceptic before, Paul, who was an opponent before, saw it and had their lives changed? Jesus is really alive. And from there, Paul says, look, if Christ is really raised, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So these guys have got bad eschatology. Okay? They, they've got a bad view of the future. They think there'll be no resurrection to come. The Bible is clear that there will. If there's no resurrection to come, Paul says this is all pointless. Our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We should be pitied. I mean, imagine how ridiculous it would be to get up early on a Saturday morning to come here and to listen to someone talking about letters that were written 2,000 years ago 
if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Stay in bed. Have a full English, you know. Live for now if there's nothing to come. And then he talks about the resurrection body. It'll be different to our natural body. Our natural body um, here uh, is kind of what we experience, but there'll be a spiritual body raised in glory. These bodies are sown in dishonour, but will be raised in glory with Christ. And then in chapter 16, he wraps it all up. He's, he's taking an offering for the poor, particularly the poor in Jerusalem. He wants the Corinthians, although the church in Corinth wouldn't look the same as the church in Jerusalem, he wants them to remember we're part of the same body. These guys are going through a hard time. There's been a famine there. We want to take an offering and support them. He tells them about his plans for travel to come and see them. And then he gives them a few final instructions to wrap up the letter. So there's one Corinthians. I, I wonder, does anyone have any questions? Cool. Well, that is good. We have got like 20 minutes to do two Corinthians. So, oh God. Yeah. It's about the 1 Corinthians 11. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, so uh, I'm thinking about uh, how Paul talked about uh, the establishment of God, mm -hmm. uh, man, woman, mm -hmm. and uh, how it's, it, it is, uh, we can apply today because mm -hmm. in many traditional church mm -hmm. we have uh, it is struggling with uh, like uh, uh, okay I think the way we can apply this mm -hmm. today how how do we think so are you particularly thinking of verse three uh, when he says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, the head of Christ is God. Is that the kind of main idea you're looking at? Precise is about uh, uh, the first, uh, the verse four, uh -huh. so verse Okay, yeah. So there's photos. So we're talking about head coverings, and um, so it says, um, verse 4 Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or, or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now, I think what's going on there, you'll see throughout from chapter 7 onwards, in most passages, we'll see a little bit in quotation marks. And what we see in quotation marks is from the Corinthian letter to Paul. Now, the problem that we have is that there weren't quotation marks in the original. So when we're putting it together, we're needing to decide from context what is a quotation and what is Paul asserting his view. In this passage, we see some big logical inconsistencies from the first half of the passage to the end of the passage. So uh, I'll give you uh, an example on verse... Yeah, so verse 8 says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And verse 12 says, For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of 
woman. There seems to be one thing said in the first half of the passage, something slightly contrary to it said in the second half of the passage. You get the same about a woman's hair, so uh, it's talking about it was uh, a disgrace, and then later on it says it's her glory. It seems like there are two different points of view at work in this passage. That leads me strongly to think that like many other passages in 1 Corinthians, part of it is a quotation of the Corinthians' view, and part of it is a statement of Paul's view. I think the verse that I read out in uh, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. That is what the Corinthians thought. They were trying to advocate that. Paul, from verse 11, with his nevertheless, I think he's saying this isn't the case. Here's why. And he makes his argument in verses 11 to 16 why not? He says, if anyone's inclined to be contagious, we have no such practice. He's saying this isn't something we do, nor do the churches of God. So he's trying to argue that the Corinthians should not do this. He's not trying to say they should do it. That's my understanding of this. I preached a sermon on this recently. It's on the CCM website if you would like to take a listen. Um, we're going to go into... 2 Corinthians now, because I've got 15 minutes to do it, and um, it's taken me an hour and three quarters to do 1 Corinthians. So, uh, just for a slight gear change, I'm going to give you like two minutes. I asked you what your experience and what passages have spoken to you from 1 Corinthians. Just turn to someone on your table and tell them your experience with 2 Corinthians and any passages that have kind of historically jumped out at you. Okay, let's wrap that up then, and let's just kind of give you a very brief overview of what's going on in 2 Corinthians. Now, 2 Corinthians compared to 1 Corinthians has a very, very different tone. What has happened in between is there's been quite a significant breakdown in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. We've seen a lot of the issues that he covered in 1 Corinthians. It seems like the people in Corinth didn't respond all that well to what Paul brought up with them. And so the relationship is on shaky ground. This feels very raw, very personal. Paul is fighting for his relationship with this church. Chapters 2 to 7, he's really defending his ministry. In the middle, he comes back to this issue of giving to the poor in Jerusalem. This is a big deal for him. And then in chapters 10 to 13, he kind of goes on the attack a bit. You've got these guys who've turned up called the super apostles. Uh, and they, they thought they were better than Paul. They thought they were better than Apollos. They thought they had more spiritual power. They thought they had more right to minister in Corinth. And they, they were criticizing how Paul had done things. And so Paul gets into that conversation. So to start with him defending his ministry, firstly they've accused him of a few things. So at the end of 1 Corinthians, he talked about his travel plans to go to Corinth. He ended up not going there. He ended up dodging it and taking a different route to where he was going. Now, they're accusing him of being inconsistent. He's saying, look, you guys were mad at me. You were angry. If I turn up, there's going to be a massive blowout. I thought it best just to let things calm down a little bit. So that's what he ended up doing. He took a different route just to allow them a bit of time to calm down. Because he thought, if I go there, it's just a powder keg waiting to explode. Then in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11... The guy who'd been excommunicated, so had been asked to leave the church because of his uh, relationship with his stepmom, seems like he's repented. It seems like he wants to come back in, that the situation has been resolved. And they're like, you know, we, we need to keep him outside. I was like, no, it's fine. He's repented. He can be restored. That was the goal of the whole thing. And then in um, chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, 
He got to a place called Troas. This is fascinating. I'm not going to go into it, but it's, it's an intriguing verse, this. It says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit wasn't at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. I mean, how many of us would say, we pray for an open door for the gospel? Paul's like, yeah, there was an open door, but, um, you know, my mate wasn't here, so I just moved on. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying, isn't it? It does show, though, how, how much of a priority working together as a team, being in community, is to Paul and should be to us as well. In the next chapter, he, he looks at what true apostleship is like. He looks at what the ministry of an apostle is. So, again, he, he touched on it a little bit in 1 Corinthians. But he talks about how, to some we're like the aroma of Christ, but to others, we're the fragrance of death. But we're not just going to peddle the word of God. We're not going to sell our, our preaching. We're going to do it for the sake of of the gospel. Chapter 3, he says, the evidence is the fruit. So they were asking for letters of commendation. Who can write a letter to say Paul is the real deal? And he said, look, you don't need a certificate to be a gospel minister. You need gospel fruit. And look at you guys, you got saved through my ministry. How can you be doubting my credentials? You're here because of what I preached to you. You are my certificate. It talks about the new covenant and the superiority of it to the old. Maybe some of those false teachers were trying to push people to the old covenant again. And then in chapter 4, he looks at the glory of the gospel. Then he talks about the ministers themselves. So it talks about their frailty. I think an accusation often made against Paul is he was unimpressive. He was frail. He physically didn't amount to all that much. But he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's how they lived. But then in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he's looking to the future. He's looking to what is to come. And he's being filled with hope. So he has courage to minister in the body. Then he goes on to the message that they're sharing. This message is motivated by the love of Christ. And it's a message of reconciliation. So I'll pick it up in chapter 5, verse 16. This is what they preached. From now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he talks about how they were willing to bear hardships to get the message across. So then he makes an appeal. And his appeal, we find it in chapter 6, verse 11. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, 
as speakers to children, widen your hearts. Also say, look, you're in our hearts. We'd like a place in your hearts as well. We want this relationship to be strong. He pleads with them not to be yoked with unbelievers. And then again, chapter 7, verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. He really is pleading for the sake of the relationship. And then uh, there's a report in that he's got from Titus saying they're doing well and he commends them. Chapters 8 and 9 are a little bit of an interlude into his theme. He's going back to this uh, offering that he's taking. He's given the example the Macedonians have been generous. He wants the Corinthians to do the same. He says about how Titus is a reliable person to deliver the offering to Jerusalem. He says, be ready. He talks about how cheerful giving is beneficial and it's all to the glory of God. Then in chapter 10, he comes back to what he's been driving at. He acknowledged how unimpressive in the flesh he was. But then in verse 12 of chapter 10, he talks about this kind of invasion of the super apostles. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So you say, look, these guys, they're there. They're trying to like compare themselves and be the most powerful. They're living the Corinthian life. They're trying to use apostleship for status to be the top dog. It shouldn't work like that. But he says, just forgive me. I'm just going to show you my credentials as well. And he talks about uh, a few different things. So he talks about his sufferings. Strange thing to boast in, isn't it? But how he suffered for the gospel. But he boasts in them. He also boasts in his revelations. He talks about uh, a man he knows who was caught up in the third heaven. Now he's talking about himself. He's just doing it in uh, a slightly subtle way. He talks about his depth of spiritual experience. A lot of the super apostles would kind of peddle their, their experience. I had this experience once, so I should be in charge. Paul said, I've had some pretty significant experiences as well. And then he boasts in his weakness. Through our weakness, God's strength is on display. Finally, he talks about uh, his intention to come and see them again. He promises he won't be a burden, but he is worried about some people there who haven't yet repented. He, wa- he warns them that there will be discipline to come. Uh, and he, expect, he says, I expect you all just to examine yourself before I do. So there's one and two Corinthians. It's, they're interesting letters. It's an interesting dynamic with Paul and this church. Compared to some of the other letters in the New Testament, I think you get a feel for Paul as a man a lot more in here. He seems, uh, he seems to love these people. He seems to be striving for a relationship that, I don't know, I sometimes assume that like Paul and the churches, everything was like rosy and everything was good. It doesn't seem like it was. It feels like there was tension, there was conflict. It kind of grounds it in, in a lot of church life today. Now, I don't think our churches are quite like the Corinthian one, but... It's a guy responding to what's put before him and trying to pragmatically and principally, principally work through complicated issues. Don't we do that all the time? And yet uh, he's got such a passion for these guys to thrive 